here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Today's guest is the author of The Immortalists, a New York Times bestseller, and The Anatomy of Dreams, a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers selection, Library Reads favorite, and number one indie next pick. The Immortalist was named a Best Book of 2018 by NPR, The Washington Post, Entertainment Weekly, and others. The Anatomy of Dreams received the Edna Ferber Fiction Award and was longlisted for the 2014 Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. Originally from San Francisco, she is a graduate of Vassar College and the MFA in Fiction at the University of Wisconsin. Her work has been translated into over 30 languages. She lives with her husband in Madison, Wisconsin. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome Chloe Benjamin. Chloe, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. 
Yeah, for our listeners, Chloe is like one of my favorite people. I remember in 2018, she was kind enough to let me piggyback one of her big events that she was doing then for the Immortalists. I had been this debut writer who was going to quite a few events on book tour and I would do my hair and makeup and get to the bookstore and there'd be like one person there who was only there because it was raining outside and they wanted to get out <laughs> from from that and that was pretty soul destroying that's another episode the shit they don't tell you about book tours oh my god but- have me on that one please Oh my goodness, yes. But it was so wonderful to be at an event with Chloe where tons of people showed up and it was just absolutely wonderful. And I adored that book. It's still a book that I get my students to study, that we dissect. And for those of you who are writing multi-POV novels, that's got like a big cast, but you still want it to be page turning, that is the book to be reading and taking apart in case you haven't. So now Chloe Something you posted on Instagram recently is what got me to reach out to you for this interview, because I know that you've struggled for a very long time with migraines that have been debilitating for you. And I know that your research process for The Immortalists was intensive because that was a book in which you had to learn about magic and about like, could you just take us through that process before we come to what your process is like now post migraines? Yes, absolutely. So when I was writing The Immortalists, I was working a day job, as so many writers do, and as I assumed I would do forever. And so I had basically Friday to Sunday to write and to research. The way that I worked then and the way that I still work is that I tend to, I like to write and then research and write and then research so that I'm not trying to keep the entire research for a book in my head as I go along. So for that book, the prologue begins in the 60s. It's New York City and four siblings have heard of the arrival of a mysterious woman who claims to be able to tell anyone the date of their death. So in that initial section, even though it was only about 20 pages, I'm researching the 60s in New York, I'm researching the Lower East Side, the Romani people and their history as fortune tellers and how a fortune telling event might have played out in this place and time. They're a Jewish family, a conservative Jewish family, and so I was also looking into how that would have manifested again at this place and time. And once the prologue was finished, I moved on to each of the four sections of the rest of the book. Each section follows a different sibling throughout the course of their life. The first one takes place in San Francisco during the AIDS epidemic. The second one follows a female magician, ultimately to Vegas. The third one follows a military doctor during the Iraq war. And the fourth follows a scientist who is pursuing longevity research, essentially trying to extend the human lifespan. So the research for each of those was very distinct and and quite comprehensive. And I utilized all sorts of materials. So, you know, of course, much of what I do is reading. I'm reading primarily nonfiction. It might be newspaper articles, journalism, academic articles, or scientific studies if I'm writing about a scientist, history. But I'm also watching documentaries. I'm watching raw footage from from the time. I'm doing interviews because I find, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, that sometimes the kind of experiential details of a time or a place or a situation are simply not graspable in the same way when you're reading about it than when you are talking to somebody who's been through it. So there's all kinds of different resources that I use and 
And, and that book was a pretty big push. Looking back, I'm not sure how I did it in the time span that I did. I've slowed down a lot since then, ironically, and can talk about that more too. And when you were deciding on each of these characters' life's path, where their lives would take them, that the one would become, you know, a magician who was working in Vegas, etc., were these things that you were always drawn to and therefore you chose these professions based on your interests? Or was it a case of these characters kind of said, well, listen, this is what I do best. You learn a bit more about it. That is such a great question. And I think it's a both and. When I had the initial idea for the Immortalists, the seed was this idea of four siblings going to a fortune teller and then drifting and the book would follow them each throughout their lives. And some of the siblings at that point I knew better than others. So the fact that Simon was a ballet dancer and that he moves to San Francisco, those are both elements of my biography. I was a ballet dancer and I grew up in San Francisco. So although I was not a gay man in the 70s and 80s and I wanted to really make sure that I researched in a way that did that justice, I did have some biographical touch points. And that was fun because I think I do so much research that it's like when I don't have to research the ballet or I know the neighborhoods, you know, that's that can be a relief. Clara, I think I had the magician idea from the start as well. Daniel and Varya were much more difficult. And I would say both of their professions are ones that I chose more because they felt like they suited the character than necessarily because they were things that I've been interested in at the outset. Although I will say that Varya's longevity research stemmed from or was inspired by an article I read all the way back in, I think, 2012. I started The Immortalist in 2014, but I didn't get to her section until 2015-16. And this was an article in The Times about a a jellyfish that, when it reached the end of its lifespan, was able to revert back to the polyp stage, the first life stage. And so I thought, that's it. That's The Immortalist. And a longer story for a different iteration of the podcast is the fact that I had to let go of the jellyfish entirely. And it turns out that it was best for her to work with primates. But that's just an example of how sometimes something you read or come across years earlier will make its way into your book. Yeah. And oh gosh, there were parts of that book that broke my heart, man. It was just like gut punching. And besides the amazing research you put into that book, which was evident on every page was, you know, you, you took it to this other level because it was questions, philosophical questions of how much of our lives are self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, do we hear something and make it come true because we believe it when we hear it? How much of it can we be in denial against, etc.? So really, there was just so much to unpack there. And I took my hat off to you for going there with the primates because, you know, I currently support a whole bunch of orangutan and primate nonprofits. But every time they send me an email to show me pictures of what's happening, I have to delete the email. I, I can't read the emails, but I'm happy to support it because it just it breaks my heart so hugely. So, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure it must have taken it out of you, this research process. Well, I do have to tell you that since writing the book, I have also become a real supporter of organizations that support primates, primate sanctuaries in particular, highly encourage listeners to look into these. They're places that, unlike zoos, don't allow visitors. Primates can live out their lives after any number of things that have happened to them, including being used for research. But I currently sponsor a particular monkey named Bianca. And, <laughs> and we have her photograph all over the fridge because they send us photographs about her, you know, from her life probably every couple of months. And I can't bear to throw them away. So it really looks like she is my child. We probably have eight photos of Bianca. Up in wow. The and 
And I mean, she must be fabulous. I mean, oh, it's she just, is. you know, there she we go. <laughs> and it was, I think it was between you and reading Karen Joy Fowler's We Are All Completely mm. Beside Ourselves that got me so interested in that. And that's probably what got me started supporting these organizations. But now let's move on to post The Immortalist. You then had to move on to the next novel. And of course, you started with these extremely debilitating migraines. I don't know if you had them before, but certainly they, they were greatly affecting your writing after that. And I'm just thinking now of a friend that I have, hi, Cap, who got concussed. And, you know, once you've been concussed, you're more prone to being concussed after that. And she got more than one concussion. And I know how incredibly difficult it was for her to be trying to finish her novel during that time as well. So can you take us through that process? Yes. The interesting thing about the migraines is that I did have them prior to The Immortalists, but they worsened to a truly disabling level during the promotion of that book. And it's very complicated. It's something that, to be honest, I'm still processing emotionally how a period of my life that was so rich and full of things that I dreamed of, you know, the kind of success with my writing, the ability to tour that I had always longed for and never thought would necessarily happen, that it was those very things that caused me to just really run myself to the bone and reach a level of burnout from which my body was very, very challenged to recover. You know, as I was describing the research process and the, the writing process for The Immortalist, I said, you know, wow, like, I don't really know how I did it as quickly as I did and without any help, because that's exactly what got me in the place that I wound up being in. You know, it was a, it was a lifetime of perfectionism and striving and pushing myself and wanting to please people and having a hard time saying no, being so grateful for the success that I didn't want to stop the train. And so the few years after that really were transformational because I realized I could not keep living that way and I could not keep writing that way. So it has been a much slower process and a much healthier process. And there has been so much that's gone into that from lifestyle changes, discovering mindfulness and meditation, seeing a physical therapist who was able to help me with the skeletal muscular triggers, really changing my relationship to stress and to pacing. You know, pacing can sound kind of like a buzzword that's empty, but for me, what it means is that I no longer push myself to the point of collapse. Instead of taking a break after I finish a scene or after I finish a book or after I finish a tour, by which time it's too late, I take breaks throughout the day. I'm always making sure that, you know, from the minute to the hour to the day, I, I am incorporating rest and downtime. So it could be something as simple as I'm writing, I set a 20 minute timer. And at that point, I make sure that I look out of the window for a couple minutes to let my eyes readjust and, you know, bring my, my heart rate a little bit, because I'm sure, you know, people might not think that writing can get your heart rate up, but you're emotionally invested, you're on, your brain is working at a really fast pace. So, you know, it might be that, or it might be after lunch, I tend to run errands and do a little bit of knitting. So I have this combination of getting out of the house, stretching my legs, also doing something relaxing before I go into an afternoon work session. And then at a more macro level, you know, I haven't done any touring since The Immortalists, but I know that I'm going to have to make substantial changes to the way that I do that. So it's been really one of the, the hardest time in my life is, is kind of that period right after the book. Book, but I am grateful that I have been able to change in the ways that I have and really ways that I never thought I could. 
Yeah, and you know, when you said earlier that you were a ballet dancer, that definitely ties into that perfectionism. I did ballet from when I was four to when I was 14, and then I went on point shoes, and my ankles were completely weak, and I was half-assed, and I really just didn't give a shit, so I just <laughs> dropped out. But people who really care about it, ballet dancers put huge pressure on themselves to strive for that level of perfectionism, and you don't leave that behind just because you've left the ballet behind. You know, you're going to carry that into other things that you're doing. Absolutely. And I think it's a chicken or the egg question too. Like, was I attracted to ballet because I already had that mindset? You know, I'm a really obsessive person, which is helpful when it comes to things like finishing a book. Sometimes people ask me, well, you know, how do you maintain the motivation to get through a book? And I'm like, I can't really tell you that because that is the least of my problems. <laughs> like, you know, I, I have many challenges, but that by nature of my obsessiveness isn't one of them. What I've had to work on is saying to myself, okay, you're lying in bed. It's 1130. Do not worry about that scene. You know, and I will literally say to myself like a dog, drop it drop it, drop it. And that, you know, it sounds like a small thing, but it really matters because then you're sleeping and then you're fresh the next day. And, you know, it's all these small habits that, that help you to build a more sustainable working life as an artist. And, and I feel so passionately about that now. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk to your listeners about it because I think there's no training. There's very few people talking about how to be creative in a way that doesn't lead to burnout. Well, yeah, because, you know, in the past, people have always romanticized this kind of artistic temperament. It's linked yes. to mental health issues and addiction and people, you know, who are like manic and spiraling, etc. And that feeds into the whole artistic thing. So people have always encouraged that as opposed to encouraging moderation and taking care of yourself, etc., etc. And it is amazing how something like obsession can be a double-edged sword because it helps you finish the manuscript, but in other ways, it can really hold you back from other things as well. So I love that your message is really for people to take care of themselves along the way. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I think you're so right about this myth of the madness of the writer and how toxic that can be. The other thing that I really notice in our culture right now is this grind culture concept push, grind, no days off, this kind of really toxic language that, I mean, I suppose if it works for a person and it's motivating for them, then to each their own. But to me, it's it's really doesn't allow for the kind of humanity and work-life balance that is so important. And I think for artists, it can be really difficult to think about even the concept of work-life balance, because what we do, it doesn't feel quite like work in the same as like, in the same way that a day job or a nine to five might. It's what we love. It's our passion. We'd probably do it regardless. But that doesn't mean that it's not labor. And that doesn't mean that we don't deserve boundaries. Yeah. And that it isn't taxing. It, it can really drain you. And I always, you know, I say this to my friends who are mothers, but I say this to artists as well, is that, you know, you can't run on an empty tank. And if the tank is empty, you've got nothing left to give, whether it's to other people or whether it's to your work. So that certainly applies. So can we talk, Chloe, about now post the migraines, etc. You've had to change the way you research. You've had to change the way you write and the way you gather your information, etc. So could you tell us now how that process looks like now? Yes. So the biggest change that I made is that for this most, this book that I'm working on now, I hired a research assistant and it has been mind blowing. <laughs> I mean, let me tell you, I, and I know this is not 
financially possible for everyone. It is a privilege that the success of The Mortalist afforded me. But it was also difficult to relinquish some control in that way, to say, okay, I'm not going to have my grip on every single part of this process. I'm going to let someone else in, which is very vulnerable when you're used to doing a complete one-woman show. You know, uh, your, your listeners probably know this, but very few novelists write collaboratively. You're almost always by yourself until the point of showing an agent or an editor, which can be years, years away from the time that you start the book. Um, but it has so been worth it because what I have given up in control, I have received in, uh, in balance and ease and also partnership. You know, it's been great to have a partner in the, the research of this book. So, so that's huge. I mean, I still do a fair amount of research myself or sometimes, you know, I'll ask her to find links or articles that I'll then read. Other times I might ask her to do the research and to come up with a memo for me. So we we have all kinds of ways that we work, but that's been huge. On a sort of nitty gritty technical level, I moved to handwriting when things were really bad with my migraines because I had a ton of photosensitivity, so light sensitivity, and it was very difficult for me to work for very long at all at the computer. Thankfully, now that my migraines are in a much better place, and I've actually done vision therapy to improve my photosensitivity, I can work much more on the computer. But I have remained someone who uses notebooks in part because I find it really inspiring to use different mediums. So in this notebook, well, for this new book, I have all kinds of notebooks. I draw in them. I write diagrams. I paste pictures or interviews with people that I find inspiring. I also take notes and sometimes write portions of scenes. But it really feels like a place where I can sort of pour the, the very, very rough stuff. And then I use the computer for the actual draft itself. Another small nitty gritty technique thing is that I really enjoy using dark mode for pretty much everything on my computer, but people might not know that there's a way that you can actually make Microsoft Word dark so that you have a dark screen with white text instead of the reverse. And that probably doubles the amount of time that I'm able to use the computer. I use Scrivener now to organize my research. Scrivener is a really awesome computer program that allows you to use folders to collect I mean, really anything that you want to. The, the way that I use it is essentially to keep track of pieces that I'm going to be using in later scenes, as well as research. And that has a dark mode as well. So, you know, as I continue to talk with you, I realize that so many of these things that I've done are small changes, but they all add up. And so when you put them all together, it leads to not just more work-life balance, but the ability to work much more comfortably for longer periods. And I think you said as well that you like to use voice notes as well. And I know, you know, for me, when I, I try and do my 10,000 steps every morning and just to get out, because as writers, we hunched over the computer the whole time in this room. And so I'm always thinking about the writing, even if I'm not writing. And, you know, it's as I'm tromping down somewhere that I'm like, oh, wait, this and this. And of course, you don't have pen and paper. And, you know, so do you use something like Evernotes or, or what kind of voice recording system do you use to take the notes and also to organize them? So I use just the, the regular old notes app on the iPhone. And 
I do dictate sometimes, especially if, like you say, I'm out walking and an idea comes to me and there's just a little microphone icon. You usually have to go over it afterward because they've inevitably, you know, garbled something. But I also just use the notes app to type in while I'm out and about and something comes to me. And the great thing about that app is that you can then email it to yourself. It also automatically through the cloud shows up on your computer. So if I've written something while I was on a walk and then later that day, I open my computer, it's there and I can copy and paste it into a document. So unfortunately I don't have a recommendation for a, a specific voice memo app, but I know they're out there and I totally encourage people to play around with what works for them. Yeah, I know Evernote had tons of functionality, including voice recordings and taking photographs of things and being able to kind of organize all of that as well. I know you feel a bit guilty about printing things, Chloe, but I know you do like printing things and you keep concertina files and and you say that you have all these different categories. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, thank you for reminding me of that. That is another huge change is that previously I would copy and paste, say, an article from the internet into a Word document and I would comment on it that way or save it that way and go back and reread it that way. And now I pretty much print out everything. One, because of my eyes, but also because I just find it much easier to take in that kind of denser, more research-based information when I have it in hard copy and I can, you know, notate with a, a red pen. So that's what I do. I print everything out and then I have these file folders. I have accordion folders, but, you know, people could easily use a file cabinet and each section is a different subject matter. So, you know, if I if I were doing it for the immortalists, I probably would have done San Francisco, ballet, magic, Vegas in the 90s, the Iraq war, etc., Judaism, you know, it can range from location to time period to profession to overall themes or interests. But I find that really, really useful. And I just, they're right next to my desk. So everything's really accessible. Yeah. And there's something about reading something and holding something, you know, I find, which is different to just having something on a screen. Studies have shown that we tap into a different part of our brain when we write with our hands in a notebook as opposed to typing. I wish I could do it, but my handwriting is so atrocious. (laughs) Honestly, I will write something and afterwards I look at it and I have no idea what I wrote. Needless to say I'm never allowed to write the grocery shopping list because my husband can't <laughs> decipher them but yeah all excellent excellent points Chloe thank you so much for taking the time to share all of this with us I don't want to put pressure on you and ask about the next book because I know it's can be so annoying for writers but just know that there are readers out there who are really really looking forward to what comes next for you and then I hope we can have you back on the show to discuss that Oh, well, thank you so much. I would love to come back. I can't wait for your work. You have, you've so undersold yourself by saying that, you know, you didn't have anyone at your readings. You are just an incredible person, incredible writer. I really just adore talking to you. So I'd be thrilled to come back anytime. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today we have a really, really special guest. I know that we normally have published authors on the show, but for me, what I absolutely love is having aspirational guests, people who we can look up to and who we can learn from along the way. And I am a creative writing instructor besides running the podcast, and I honestly learn so much from my students. I learn more from teaching than I do from writing. And our special guest today is Olivia. She is a young writer who I coach and mentor. She's 12 years old. She's in grade six. And let me just say what a phenomenal writer Olivia is. Honestly, the work that Olivia is producing is the kind of work that I was producing sort of when I was about 17, 18, or in my early 20s. And Olivia is only 12. So it really is something special. And I thought we would have Olivia on today so that she could share her words of wisdom with us. Olivia, hello. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me on here. 
Yeah, thank you for joining us. Right, so I know that you have made notes of the advice that you would like to share with our listeners. Why don't you take us through that? You can start with the first one and we'll see how far we get to today. Okay, well, hi, as Bianca said, my name's Olivia. And today I'm going to be sharing you a couple of tips that I have for when I'm doing creative writing. So my first big tip is to always try to get into your character's heads when you're writing because it's much better to be able to know who your character is and how they act and what they say so then you know what will happen throughout the story. So a good way to do this and get inside their heads is to use celebrities or people you know and you can connect them with your characters. So then if you're blanking and you don't know what to write for your character, then you can say, okay, what would this person do in real life? And you can help you make connections to it. And you can also, when you're creating characters, you can add little details to how they talk or the way they talk to make it more relatable for people, for readers. So for example, I tend to say like a lot. So I made one of my characters in my story that I'm writing now say like, because it's something that I think that a lot of readers can relate to, and it adds more to my character. And that's the other thing about writing in first person is that it doesn't need to sound impressive. It just has to sound like whoever this character is. So, you know, maybe it's part of their character that they do speak really professionally, or maybe they have bad grammar, but that could all be part of your character. It doesn't need to be like reflected on how you write. Wonderful Um, advice there from Olivia. And Olivia, in the book that she's busy writing at the moment, has various points of view, various main characters, one of which is an Italian nonna. And it's amazing how Olivia's made those chapters sound so incredibly different from the young girl Taylor's perspective. Right. Carry on, Olivia. Yeah, so as Bianca said, one of them is an Italian nonna, so I thought that it would add a bit to the way she speaks if I added some Italian words here and there just to show that like her English isn't as good and that she's like really Italian. And then I'm going to add like a glossary at the end with the different Italian words. And the other thing I like about that is that sometimes I even learn from my characters because while researching these different words, then I learn a bit of Italian. And when I'm searching up different ideas for paintings and stuff like that for one of my artistic characters, then I also learned a lot in that way. So it's a really great way to not write your story, but you can also learn while creating it. Yeah. Wonderful. Carry on. Yeah. So when you're describing a setting or a person, pay attention to what your character specifically noticed. So this is something that at first I didn't notice in my story, but then Bianca helped me like work through it because at first I had one of the characters in the story that's like a hockey boy and he doesn't really notice the little things. He's more about if they have installed a new hockey court yet or hanging out with his friends. And at one part I wrote that he noticed the freshly planted flowers, but that isn't really something that he would notice. It would be more of something about what the other girl who really likes nature and painting would like. Because again, another part of the story, they were on a subway station and I made him notice. And I thought, okay, what would the girl notice rather than what the boy would notice? Because she would notice something more like the fresh paint on the walls or the colorful posters. 
because it shows her perspective of not just the subway station, but life in general, because what she notices and what other characters might and might not. I love that. And as well, something that you did was you had the Nonna have different kinds of pasta that she liked. And then there's some pastas that she says are not even really pasta. So when she's comparing things that she really loves, she compares it to like her favorite pasta, right? Yeah. Yes. Another thing is that after writing a description, you can ask a reader how they're imagining it. So you can be that how you write it conveyed it the right way. Because sometimes when you're writing something, then since you're imagining it one way, you might not add all those details right away. And so, for example, the prologue of my story, I was writing how it's dusty and it smells and there's creaky floors and on like out of shape brick walls that aren't really paved well. And so that could easily be an attic, but really it was supposed to be a castle turret. And I thought, okay, how can I make it so that readers will read this and think of a castle? So I was talking about the rounded walls and the stairwell in the middle. And I could, I could also write about how I can hear the castle guards and stuff like that. So then you can add and take away little details. So then you can make sure that how you're imagining it fits with how the reader will imagine it when they see it. Wonderful. What else? So a big, big thing is to focus on relationships between characters and show their dynamics. Because since it isn't like a movie where you can't watch and see their facial expressions and body language or their tone, then you can't really tell like how they're saying or doing something. So if instead of writing, the characters are embarrassed, you could say their face turns bright red and they look like they want to curl up into a ball and disappear. Because then you know that they're embarrassed without saying they're embarrassed. A book I just finished reading is called Broken Strings. It was really interesting to see how the relationship between this girl and her grandpa changed so much throughout the book because it really added a lot to the story in those relatable parts and parts where it just, I don't know how to describe, but it just adds so much to the story and adds so much meaning when there's those big relationships between them. And just say before you continue, Olivia, can we talk a bit about how much you learn about the craft of writing through reading? So like the book that you and I are studying together, if you can maybe talk a bit about that and the things you've learned from that by being a very critical reader now, as well as a writer. So another thing is to always try to be dropping hints to keep your readers engaged and asking questions, because this is a big thing about stories. I think that's the goal of the book, is that at any given moment, you should, if someone asked, like, is that a good book? And you could say, yeah, I'm re- I really need to find out about blank. So because that's really important that your reader wants to continue the book and is looking forward to that. Because another book that I'm reading in library, that's like the main part of the book. And it has like a lot of buildup, which is really good. And I'm pretty sure you only find out at the end about this big question that's being asked. And then it, so it keeps us all like wondering and questioning what who could it be and what could it be so it helps you be creative with your mind and it gives you hints along the way of what's happening because it doesn't you want to be careful not to reveal too much too soon because it wouldn't be very exciting if it just kept on if any everything kept on happening right when it was brought up so even if it's something small at first if it doesn't seem like it fits in then most likely the author is planning to bring that back later on in the story and make it something bigger. Wonderful. Carry on. So 
along with that and keeping the reader engaged is to try as hard as you can to make your chapter an ending on cliffhangers because I, in my opinion that's the best part of a chapter or a story is the end like the last sentence or two that like kind of is like almost an aha moment that's what we learned about in school it's like a reading signpost where you make a big discovery and even if it's just small because at the end then that's what makes you say oh I want to move on like I want to keep on reading because that's what happens a lot with the books I read is that I'll say okay I'm going to read one chapter but then when I get to the end of that chapter I say oh my god now I need to know what happened next so I need to keep on going and that's what you should really look try to do in a story amazing and, and the next thing is a bit of a different point but look out for redundancy so that's when you add details that aren't needed because they kind of add more and you already know that that's what's happening. So it's kind of confusing to explain, but such as shrugging shoulders or nodding your head, because what else would you be shrugging or what else would you be nodding or blinking or anything like that? Because you just automatically know that that's what the character is doing. And yes, then you don't need to clarify as much. Try to mix up dialogue with action beats and dialogue tags so it doesn't sound repetitive. So it would be pretty boring if it just said, this person did this, they wave, this person did that, they say they say this, because you want to change the dialogue tag, which is said, instead of that, you can say exclaim or whisper, because again, with the movie thing, you can't really see them or hear them. So you need to be able to show the reader their tone without them actually hearing it themselves. They need to imagine it. So you can say, so if they're yelling, then you can add exclamation points and say they shout or they scream. And that also adds to the character because it shows how the characters talk. And also you can make character descriptions and movements into action beats and dialogue because you don't need to say they exclaim they wave you could say hi they exclaim waving so then you can mix it all together so it isn't choppy and it's smooth and it's very smooth yeah and something that Olivia does really well is she works in her descriptions of the characters into her action beats so she'll have the character saying something and then she'll say he twirled his gray beard or he twirled his gray mustache or something like that and that's a very organic way to find out how the character looks as opposed to just a paragraph of description. Mm -hmm. Carry on. And so there are main plots and subplots to keep things interesting. For example, in The Desk of Zoe Washington, the main plot has to do with the girl Zoe and her dad, who she hasn't seen since she was a baby and is suddenly writing her letters, which is a big mysterious plot. And so that has us asking lots of questions. But then it also has this slightly smaller plot, which is a subplot of her and her friend, who's now her ex-friend, and the reader doesn't know why. So it adds more to the story rather than just having it all focused on the same thing. It also makes your story longer and adds like more purpose and you get to know like a, more about your character's life. And the reader gets to really imagine how they live their life and everything like that. Perfect. What else? So when you're the, well, when you're the reader and when you're the author, you don't need to know everything all at once. So whether it's in the story or before you write the story, then it doesn't need to be, okay, these are going to be my characters. This is where it's going to take place. This is how the entire story is going to lay out because it's good to have ideas before writing. But for me, when I started, so my story is called Fire on the Station. And the how I thought of this name was that one day I was on the way home from school and there was a small fire in the subway station. And so 
someone next to me said like, oh, I think there's like a fire in the subway station. And then another person said, oh, that would be a cool name for a book. And I said, yeah. And then I kept thinking about that. So even my story just started off with the name and then I expanded off the name. So it can really go off anything. It can be a character or a setting or a place or anything where you can say this has potential and you want to grow from that. Good. What else? So there can be different times to draft and polish because by giving yourself time and distance before going back to a chapter that you just wrote can be really helpful because I know there's like some of you have probably seen this experiment where someone will write down a sentence and it will say, for example, how are, are you? And people won't even realize that there's two of the same word because they're so focused on because that's how they know it's supposed to be written. So when you're writing, since you just wrote it, it sounds right. And because it sounds like what it should be because you thought of it. And so even if you wrote the five times and you might not even notice it because it's really fresh in your brain. But if you come back to it later and read it out loud carefully or if someone else read it for you, then it can help you realize these smaller things and how to like edit properly. I love that advice. And also let's talk about Olivia about how we've spoken about how, you know, perfectionism is the enemy of creation. If we try with our first draft to write something perfect, we're so focused on perfectionism that we're not allowing the creativity to come through. So for you, what's your favorite part of the process? Well, I really like creating new things in my story. I I don't like to stick to the same place, the same characters. I like to always be adding on new characters. Like even this week, I added a new chapter from a whole new character, which is the girl's parents who the readers thought had passed away. And it adds like a whole new level of suspense. And it would probably be fun for the reader when they're seeing the story. And for me, because it gives me so many opportunities to expand on like what I'm doing. Yeah, very much so. And so so when you sit down to write this new character, is it because the ideas have been percolating in your head for a bit? Do you think about them for a bit before you sit down to write? Or do you sit down and just kind of feel authentically where the story is taking you? What's your process there? I usually do a mix of both. So I can think of just people in general, people I know or people who I don't know, or people who I've seen. Usually it's a mix of everything because I'll be reading what I have so far in my story and then also ask myself questions about it, such as what's going to happen next or where is this going? And then when I say, where is this going? Then who will be there? Then I have this whole other thing where there will be lots and lots of characters that are just waiting to be discovered for the reader. And so that's where I usually get my ideas to write about them next. Amazing. Amazing. All right. What else? So you want to try to incorporate humor into your stories, because even if it isn't a funny book, like, of course, it's not like a super serious book, but you can have different, you can add to characters' personalities if they're really quirky or funny, so that readers will wonder how that character will react in different scenarios later. Because if they're like the jokester, then it will say, oh, will they lighten the mood later or will they make things worse? and different things like that because you want when someone's reading your book or describing it after then you want them to be able to use a lot of different words to describe it they don't you don't want them to only say it's a sad book or it's a happy book you want to have a mix of everything so it's happy sad fun everything like that so that's why you should try to incorporate as many emotions into your characters as possible 
and you incorporate all different kinds of humor. So it's not just the jokester character. So you'll have some characters that you know are the funny characters and they make the jokes all the time, but you'll have instances where characters don't even realize that they're funny, but we as the readers know that they're funny. So how do you approach writing that kind of scene? Well, sometimes I'll think about people in real life and things that maybe at school that I've heard or that my family has said that isn't supposed to be like knocked off to their kind of joke, but just like a funny scenario that happens or something that people have done that maybe is embarrassing that I could add in, such as one of the characters. It wasn't like a joke in general that he was trying to do, but he's terrified of spiders and a spider got on him and he started going crazy. So that was really funny, probably for the reader and for me to write. And that was a scene that it wasn't him saying a joke or trying to be funny. It was him being genuinely terrified, which was the funny part. Yeah, and that's why writing action effectively is so important because so much can be conveyed through action. And you spoke earlier about character dynamics. You know, if you have two characters who kind of are tentatively reaching out to hold each other's hands, that's an action and it tells us something about their dynamic. But as well, what Olivia did so well is having this character screaming as he's trying to get the spider off of him and someone else is trying to help, but you could perfectly visualize it. Do you ever get someone to act something out, Olivia, before you write the gestures? Or is it just that you can close your eyes and perfectly imagine how that scene is unfolding? How do you write action so well? I I kind of just close my eyes and imagine it. And I'll say, like, what's like a normal situation that, that happens like a lot? And how can I exaggerate it to make it to the next level, make it funny and exciting and extreme? And that's excellent advice for all of our listeners. You know, taking things to the next level, whether it's tension, whether it's heightening tension, whether it's comedic things, whether it's plot, getting this kernel of an idea and then saying, how can I heighten it? How can I take it to the next level? Were there any more points you wanted to add, Olivia? Yes, I have one more. So this is something that I wrote in this short story before, is to add a bit of mystery to your characters, because not in all situations, but it can add a lot to the story if you're describing something at first. An example in this story is that I was talking about something with a pink nose and he was always scratching himself and shoving food into his mouth with little ears and it was like blonde hair and it was very hairy and sharp teeth and things like that. And right now, that probably sounds like a really weird person. But then a couple pages later, you find out that it was a hamster. And the reader might not be paying as much attention to that because they'll think, no, it definitely said that it was a human. And they go back and read it. and It makes so much sense. And it helps piece the story together that that's what's happening. And it's also the way you wrote it, right? So you had one character who was a boy sitting across from this hamster having a discussion, which also lends the reader to making assumptions on their part going, oh, it's a conversation between two school children because it was happening in a classroom. Yes. Yeah, because that was based off of another book that I had read a bit ago, and there was a class hamster. So that's where I got the inspiration for that. Yeah, and remember, there are no original stories. So as writers, we should be reading voraciously and certainly being inspired by other writers. Well, our time is up. Olivia, what a joy chatting to you. Thank you so much for sharing your advice with us. And for our listeners, I can already predict that Olivia is going to be a phenomenal writer. I know that one day I will get to go to her launch party. And when she becomes a big star, I'll ask her to remember me all those years back when we used to do our writing together. Thanks, Olivia. 
Thank you so much, Bianca. You've helped me develop my writing so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's bookseller is an independent bookseller at One More Page Books in Arlington, Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C. She is also a public historian, podcaster, and printmaker. In a past life, she also worked professionally in the vibrant D.C. theater scene for over a decade. Born and raised in the American South, she has a penchant for good food, women's sports, and complicated history. It's my pleasure to welcome Rebecca Spees. Rebecca, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me again after the ruckus I caused last time. <laughs> you know, for our listeners, we have a ton of new listeners, um, many of which who haven't gone back and listened to past episodes. But if you are a new listener, you have got to go back and find that episode. Rebecca and I discussed dinosaur porn. Um, <laughs> you know, it was dinosaur erotica. We discussed the worst sex scenes in books. It was, it was probably one of my favorite interviews ever so if you haven't heard that you have missed out so Rebecca thank you so much for joining us today to to give our listeners some comps I'm gonna hand across to you will you kick it off yeah hi Bianca Carly and Cece thank you for your show the shit no one tells you about writing and for the offer to develop comps for writers about to query I thought of pitching my historical novel, Brighter Than Her Fears, as Pride and Prejudice in the Gilded Age South, but I'd value your opinion on that in place of a comp or more specific comp recommendations. Here's the premise. In 1882 Asheville, a 30-year-old spinster surrenders to an unwanted marriage after the failure of her family's farm. When her property rights are challenged, she wields North Carolina's new legal rights for women to secure her independence and discovers an unexpected love. Thank you very much, Lisa Art. Um, the first comp that popped into my head was The Giver of Stars by Jojo Moyes, or Moyes. I think it's Moyes. I think that will give you that historical, feminist, mountainy feeling. Um, and also authors like uh, Beatrice Williams or Chanel Clayton. Hi there. I'm looking for comp suggestions for my upmarket women's fiction novel. Um, I describe it as three women in their late 50s. Uh, move into a dream home together with no partners or kids for the second act life they dreamed of. But when someone from their past arrives, a tragic secret is revealed that threatens their friendship. So far, I have the Golden Girls as a comp, but I'm just looking for other comps. Thank you. I thought of uh, Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. You have that sort of mysterious, tragic backstory. And I also thought of a book called The Weekend by Charlotte Wood. She's an Australian author. And I think that this um, setup for this book really suits that synopsis as well. Hi, I'm hoping to get some YA comps 
for uh, my 84,000 word novel, Crazy Like Heaven, which features a lot of cursing. And uh, the pitch is searching for justice in a city on fire. A teenage throwaway hunts her friend's killer through the tumultuous back streets of 1968 Baltimore. So that's basically the story. I've gotten some, uh, it was originally uh, pitched as a coming-of-age novel to adults, and I've gotten you know, a bunch of the so-called really nice rejections, but uh, I really would like to, to try it out on the YA market. So if there's anybody that uh, can make comps for me that have a lot of F-bombs in them, that would be really great. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. I think there's a couple of different ways uh, to go with this. I uh, heard in the recording that it was set in Baltimore in 1968. So I'm going out on a limb that it is based around the Baltimore race riot. Um, And if that is the case, I would really recommend the YA novel uh, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight by Kimberly Jones and Gilly Siegel or Seagal. And authors like Nick Stone, Courtney Summers um, also have that young adult thriller and social justice aspect. Hello, my name is Robert. I'm looking for comps for a memoir I've written. It's the true life account of a group of 11 teenagers who sailed around the world on a 85-foot wooden hull sailboat and the unusual circumstances that led to their extraordinary adventure. I would recommend looking at travel memoirs and tailoring your comps to meet the tone of the book. So if it's a humorous memoir, I would go with someone like Bill Bryson. Um, If it's a little bit more, I don't know, literary or a little bit more introspective, I would go with someone like Paul Thoreau or uh, Mark Adams. Um, Turn left at Machu Picchu is the one that popped up in my brain. For our listeners, tone is so incredibly important. So if you can give us an indication of that, because, you know, you can have two books written about the exact same thing. One could be lighthearted and satirical and the other one could be like really serious and dark. And of course, that'll completely change, you know, Mm. the the comps you got. And Rebecca, the last time we spoke, you recommended In the Dream House to me because I'm not a big memoir person. Yeah. Um, and I've bought it and it's on my to be read cart. Actually, there's two Hooray. to be read carts. But um, yeah, because you put that on my radar, I am definitely going to be tackling that as well. I love giving book recommendations. So all of these comps are also just like, also just read these books because they're great. Hi, my story is about, it takes place 50 years in the future where they're dealing with the effects of climate change. Two sisters living in the rubble of their city, which sank. And they discover that mermaids are real which is amazing. Um, but the mermaids are angry because we poisoned their oceans. They want to declare war on us, on everyone on land. It has an en- ensemble cast, including a group of journalists, crazy journalists, a little bit conspiracy theory, doesn't mean they're not right. And um, they're kind of fighting Big Brother, secret society, that kind of a thing. So anything you can suggest would be amazing. You guys rock. Thank you. This one was tricky for me because it could go one of two ways again. I would say if it's a more uh, commercial, like pulpy tone in your book, I would look for uh, books like The Past is Red by Catherine M. Valenti or the movie Waterworld is also what popped into my head. And like that will give someone an immediate idea of what is in that book. However, if it's more on the literary side of things, I would recommend a comp of maybe On Such a Full Sea by Chang Ray Lee or Gold Fame Citrus by Claire Vey Watkins. Um, those are both really great things in the neighborhood, I 
I have a 120 to 125,000 word epic adult fantasy novel called Blood Moon Rising, um, in which uh, the female protagonist breaks free of the um, hyper patriarchal society that she lives in. Um, and of the concept that she is too sensitive in her nature. So she's a neurodivergent uh, protagonist. Um, She's married off to a stranger, uh, and after sort of failing to be a good wife, she meets a woman called the Traveler who can open doors through the fabric of reality um, and who claims that women are blessed with the magical ability to connect with um, a moon deity. Uh, and yeah, so the the book itself is a journey about um, deconstruction and recovering a value of self. I would recommend, the first thing that popped into my head was The Power by Naomi Alderman. And that one is a more dystopian sci-fi than the fantasy that you described. But I think that paired with the fantasy would be a really strong comp combo. Um, so I would pair The Power by Naomi Alderman with some more classical fantasy like Juliette Marillier or maybe uh, Marie Rutkowski. Uh, the Winner's Kiss is the one that I thought of. Yeah. Again, I, I consider myself a fairly well-read individual and I have not read most of these, Rebecca. So you are shaming me and you are adding a ton of books to my list. <laughs> no worries. I, yeah, my to-be-read list is as long as I am tall, uh, you know, and then times 10. <laughs> Hi, I'm looking for comps for an adult upmarket novel with a magic realist twist. My MC is a youngish prep cook, an aspiring chef who is being bullied by a narcissistic sous chef. Unable to deal with conflict, she begins hearing recipes whenever people yell. She tries them out on her friends and neighbors, both sparking a relationship and catching the attention of the executive chef. It backfires when she can't turn it off in an emergency situation and has to confront the bully in order to get her life back. This one was an immediate comp for me because... I thought of City Baker's Guide to Country Living by Louise Miller meets Sarah Addison Allen, who uh, you mentioned in that in that summary of having a little twist of fabulism to it. Um, and I think Sarah Addison Allen will really tick that uh, box for you. So just a question here in terms of the fabulism. Yeah. Is this now the word we're using? Because people use magical realism a lot of the time. And of course, we're saying you can't yeah. just be using magical realism because this is <laughs> for, you know, books like in South America. It, that's the kind mm. of term. So so could, for our listeners, could you give like a definition of fabulism? Of course. Yeah. And this will also this differs, obviously, from person to person. The way that I have taken to using magical realism and fabulism is that magical realism doesn't necessarily have to be from that South American sort of tradition, you know, Marquez and Isabella Allende. But for me, magical realism has to grapple with that same kind of colonial legacy that Marquez and Allende are writing about, you know, their uh, fantastical elements in their worlds are used to such a way to explore oppression and um, colonialism and, you know, their sort of home cultures, politics and struggles that way, um, which I think is a little bit different than, you know, I walk outside and I talk to the bird who's sitting on my doorstep. Like, that's a little bit different to me. So for those kinds of books where everything is normal, but everything is just a little bit fantastical, I like to use the word fabulism for those uh, just as a, you know, a divider between those two. But I also recognize that like magical realism is the more 
recognized term um, is perhaps a little bit, you know, more encompassing. That's really useful because I remember many years ago, one of my favorite books was um, Etta and Otto and Russell and James. Um, and it's a woman who's older. Uh, I think she was like in her 70s or something. And it's, you know, mm. it's got that um, Harold Fry kind of vibe to it in that she just begins walking. But as she's walking, she's having conversations with foxes and animals who are walking with mm. her. And, you know, I always describe that as magical realism until I learned that, you know, that isn't really that. So it's great for me now that I can say, well, that's more fabulism so thank you for clearing that up for me yeah yeah and of course but like if that was a situation where like she's talking to foxes and like the foxes are talking about like I don't know the Chechescus or like some dictator that they survive like if there's more sort of if you'll pardon the pun things to chew on <laughs> to gnaw on then it could very well be magical realism you know I haven't read it it sounds really wonderful though yeah I mean these were I think were more personal things about her life and etc mm. so, so then definitely in the fabulism perfect thank you okay next one of course my name is Everett Hawthorne, and I definitely could use some assistance in finding comps for my dual POV contemporary second chance romance with BDSM twist. The female main character is divorced in her 30s with two kids and rekindling a relationship she lost with her high school slash college sweetheart. The male main character is a recovering alcoholic who has gotten his life rebuilt and has it all but the one that got away. It's a story about honesty, acceptance, and living congruently with your authentic self. Thank you so much for your help. For this one, so it's romance with a BDSM twist. So my brain went to someone like Tiffany Rice. Um, the Rose is probably the most well-known of hers. Or someone like Sylvia Day or Tessa Bailey, depending on, you know, how pr uh, prominent those elements are of the story. And there's a new romance actually coming out later this year called Built to Last by Aaron Hahn. And it is an adult second chance romance with a little bit of sort of a little raunchy twist um, that could also be a really good comp for you. Wonderful. Thank you. So my book, I would say, is very much like Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine or A Man Called Uva. So I have those comps, but I would love something more recent within the last two years, period. Any thoughts? Oh, question mark. Look, see, I'm punctuating it because I think I'm doing a text. <laughs> this one was very difficult for me because I they very specifically wanted things from the most recent you know past two years and the only book I could come up with is from 2019 so it's just under the wire so I hope this is okay but something in the vein of Eleanor Oliphant Man Called Ove the only title I could come up with was Evie Drake Starts Again by Linda Holmes um, it is from 2019, but I do think that it will uh, tick those mental boxes um, that you want to. What about the recently released The Maid by uh, Nita Prose? Because that was come to Eleanor Oliphant. But I suppose oh, that's yeah. more like a cozy mystery. So I suppose yeah, it depends I... on the voiciness or, or what particularly what part they're comping. Yeah, and that uh, recording didn't really say just that these were the two comps that they had and they wanted more recent ones. So it could be that The Maid would work very well. I haven't read The Maid, but it did read more or it feels more like a mystery comp to me. Um, yeah, that was like a neurodivergent main character who gotcha. you know, is, is a maid and, you know, um, they're solving a murder mystery, etc. But in terms of the voiciness, that was very Eleanor. Oh, no, that would absolutely, I think that would absolutely work. 
Hi, and thanks very much for this opportunity. Azos in Bloom is a hopefully humorous fiction, possibly picaresque story about the first week of summer vacation for a family of four. Perry, the father, is a mediocre CPA who fancies himself an entrepreneur. His wife, Jane, is a frustrated school teacher with a serious drinking hobby. Their daughter, Carrie, at 16, has a flourishing business growing and selling marijuana. And their son, Jerry, at 14, is abandoning his porn video sales business in order to do an on a internship at his father's firm. Uh, after Perry and Jerry managed to get themselves fired the first day, Perry buys an ice cream truck after the mysterious death of the long-term local ice cream man and a run-in with a potential competitor. Perry jumps on board to use the ice cream truck to continue her sales, and things go from there. I came up with a couple of TV shows that this recording really made me think of. I It had big Arrested Development and Big Shit's Creek energy, um, where there's a this ensemble of wacky family members doing wacky things. The part about the ice cream cart made me think of the banana stand in Arrested Development. Um, so I think that would be really wonderful. And um, as a Canadian, I'm here for all things Schutz Creek, man. <laughs> I need to I need to finish it. I like started the first episode and I was like, okay, this is good. I'm going to save it. And now I have saved it for like two years. And, and it's so funny because I was the opposite. I watched the first episode and I was like, this is the biggest load of crap. What is this? What's happening here? And this is when it first came out. And so we didn't watch uh -huh. it until it really took off and everyone was saying you have to watch it. And I was like, okay, let me give it another try. Um, yeah. And then got really into it. Yeah. Hello, I'm looking for comps for my current work in progress, a women's fiction novel with strong romantic elements. It is mostly dual POV, split between two best friends, though there are also a few chapters from the antagonist's point of view. The bulk of the story takes place over a single day and revolves around a cancelled wedding. One main character is the maid of honor, the other, the runaway bride. The plot follows these two women as they navigate the chaos of the day, which does include a love interest or two, but also shows their strong friendship and bond as a through line in the story. I think you could go a couple different ways. You could either go um, the more comedic route, um, or you could go the more serious literary route. And I don't entirely know, you know, whatever one suits best for you. Something like Swing Time by Zadie Smith has that female friendship relationship very, very close at its center. And then on the other hand, you have something like Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. I think that Sally Rooney can be a, a tricky comp these days. But if you think the tone is there, I think that's perfect. There's also, you could really lean into the rom-com element with The Worst Best Man by Mia Sosa. I think that's definitely more on the romance end, so it might not be perfect for you. But Swing Time and Conversations with Friends were the ones that popped into my head. Um, something that's popping into my head there is The yeah. Animators by Kayla Ray Whitaker. It was quite, it was about four, four or five years ago, but excellent, mm -hmm. excellent book. Yeah. Elena Ferrante also, like, she's quite literary, but like all of her books have that really complicated female friendship at the middle. I have a memoir. The logline is orphaned at 12 and fearful of living a lifetime alone. I'm determined to create a loving family. But when a hostile divorce tears it apart, I learn fighting to ensure what life works out as planned is not the recipe for happiness after all. This new source of strength carries me through the death of my son and teaches me what true belonging really means. Um, it includes themes of, of having a life of grief and joy, of finding meaning in loss, and um, 
the search for belonging. I'm looking for books that involve people who are forced to rebuild their lives from a new foundation. Really excited to see what you come up with. Thank you so much. The titles that I have for you, um, something like Educated by Tara Westover. You know, it, it was a big, huge book, but I think that has that reinvention and overcoming obstacles um, throughout your life. It has that in spades. And I also had a book called The Salt Path by Rainer Wynn. And it is a memoir. Um, it's a bit of a travel memoir, but it has that aspect of overcoming and dealing with grief in order to sort of build yourself up from the bottom. So those are the two that popped into my head for that one as well. Amazing, Rebecca. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to help us with the comps and for joining us. And uh, we hope to have you back again, whether to discuss dinosaur erotica or comps, any excuse. <laughs> You know, I'm always here. I hope that is helpful for folks. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. 
Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.